Good evening, everybody. Back again with the I Came With Fire podcast. Tonight, we are here with Don Hoffman, who's a professor at UC Irvine. Uh, Don, you are the author of over 100 different types of paper. Uh, and the, the book we have here tonight, uh, The Case Against Reality, uh, I'll hold it up for everybody can see it. Go ahead and link that on our page as well when we uh, post the episode. But um, thoroughly enjoyed reading this book and also read uh, one of your papers as well on um, the conscious agent theory. Um, okay. So, yeah, uh, extremely intriguing stuff. I feel like the concept of reality not being reality is a pretty hot t- ticket item right now with everybody. So it's a conversation I see and hear a lot. Be a lot of fun to talk about it. Yeah, whatever, yeah, wherever you want to go with uh, absolutely the pursuing the non-reality of reality. <laughs> okay, yeah, uh, you're definitely the person to have that conversation with. So, um, in your book, you make the claim essentially that um, our view on reality is is not what reality actually is. It's an it's an interpretation totally removed from what objective reality really is, because our perception throughout mm-hmm. evolution is to maximize our survivability and uh, correct me and stop me when I'm not making sense. Right. And that um, our perception is purely rooted in what we need to see essentially to survive. Um, and if you could expand on that 30,000 foot view um, yeah. of your book, that'd be great. That's right. So philosophers for, for thousands of years have speculated that perhaps mm-hmm. our perceptions don't match reality to varying degrees. Plato has the very famous allegory of the cave where he says that our perceptions are more like seeing the flickers of shadows of objects as uh, flickers of the shadows of reality, not reality itself. And, and, but what's remarkable is that in the last few decades, our scientific theories have gotten precise enough that we can begin to ask, what do our best scientific theories say about our perceptions and the relationship to reality. Right. So that's where I've been interested in, in, in going. I've, I'm, of course, interested in what the philosophers say, but, but when our best scientific theories weigh in, I, I definitely want to hear what they have to say. And so one of those theories is evolution by natural selection, which mm-hmm. is our, our, I'm not saying evolution by natural selection is the final theory or the right theory, but it's the best theory that mm-hmm. science has so far. And so as a scientist, it's my duty to look at what the best science says. And what's, what's unique about evolutionary theory is that it has a, a model of our perceptual systems and how they evolved. And so you can ask, okay, did, does evolution say that our perceptual systems evolved to show us truths, at least some truths, about objective reality, or maybe all the truth about objective reality? So that, that, that turns out to be a technical question that you can ask. And mm-hmm. In, in Darwin's formulation, it wasn't mathematically precise enough. Darwin was not a mathematician. But um, evolutionary game theory, which came around in the 1970s, um, um, John Maynard Smith was the, the genius mathematician and biologist who put the mathematics to Darwin's theory and gave us evolutionary game theory. And it's been, then grown quite a bit. And so we have mathematical tools. And so we can ask a precise question of evolutionary theory. Um, what is the probability that any sensory system of any organism has ever been shaped by natural selection to see any true features of objective reality, whatever objective reality might be? Right. Yeah, so that, that's the te- technical question. I'll, I'll just state it more simply. Um, that I, I stated it 
precisely, but more simply, what's the probability that we, we were shaped to see the truth, you know, is, is the, the, the short question. Right. And of course, some people might object and say, well, you, you can't use evolutionary theory to ask that question. Um, it's first, how do you know what the truth is? And if you, if you don't know what the truth is, how are you going to decide whether or not evolution shaped you to see the truth, right? So that's one objection right. that people will have. And, and, and the answer is, it turns out, you don't need to know the truth is you can say, suppose uh, objective reality had this structure, like a mathematical structure, like a total order or a metric or a topology or whatever. You can ask for each of those, those structures, what is the probability that evolution would shape us to see that? And, and one after another, you can go down the list. Um, okay. So, and, and the answer is the probability is zero. It's, it's, it's not just roughly zero, it's precisely zero in the limit as, as the number of um, states of the world gets, gets large uh, and, the, and the possible states of the sensory system get large. Right. And so that's, that's, it's a stunning result. I actually didn't expect that result when I was starting this. I thought that right. we would have, you know, some exaggerations of the truth and cases that we missed and so forth, but to have it be precisely zero in case after case, you know, total orders, metrics, topologies, whatever you pick, the probability is zero precisely in the limit that right. you're going to, that any system would be shaped to see that, that structure. That, that surprised me. Now an objection, another objection that, that philosophers will have to this, this approach is to say, uh, you can't, do this without being self-refuting, without getting yourself in a logical contradiction, right? So they'll say, look, the, the argument is <clears throat> Darwin's theory of evolution has as fundamental concepts things like real organisms competing over real resources in space and time. Right. So, so now, if you're using evolutionary game theory to test Darwin's ideas and to decide whether or not um, we're seeing the truth, perceiving the truth. Well, then either evolutionary mathematics that you have, the evolutionary game theory mathematics, is a faithful representation of Darwin's ideas, or it's not. Right. If it's not, then of course you couldn't use it to say anything about Darwin's theory. So you couldn't use it to ask this question about do our perceptions um, perceive the truth? And, and, and if it does, if, if the mathematics of evolutionary game theory does faithfully represent Darwin's ideas, then it couldn't possibly contradict him. So mm -hmm. either way, you can't possibly use evolutionary game theory to, to prove what you've done. So, you've, so, so Hoffman, you've shot yourself in the foot, logically. And, 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 and it's, so it's not just one. There's several philosophers who, who've said that, some in, in, in journals. And, and so, so the, the reason why that that's not a problem is their objection doesn't understand how scientific theories work mm -hmm. and how the mathematics of scientific theories work. So, so I'll give you a, another example where, where it's a little bit clearer. So Einstein, in his theory of gravity and of mm -hmm. space-time, right. he had intuitions about light and also about falling elevators, right? And he, had his big, you know, he said this, you know, his happiest idea was you – know, when he, he imagined himself in an elevator standing on a, a scale, weighing himself, then all of a sudden the cord is cut on the elevator and you're in free fall. Mm -hmm. And what would happen to your weight? And he realized Weightless. that your weight would be zero. Mm -hmm. 
And, th- and that was his big idea. He, he realized that the weight would be zero. And that was like in 1907. It took him until 1915 to turn that into mathematics. So That's he incredible. had the idea. But even, I mean, this is how science works. Even if you're a genius like Einstein, sometimes to go from the idea to a mathematical, rigorous statement of the idea takes a long time. So Einstein got his, his theory. And also Einstein had, had come up with some of the key ideas for quantum theory. I mean, he had his, his theory of the photoelectric effect was one of the first real quantum theories in 1905. So, so great. So that's math, the, Einstein's mathematics and his intuitions and so forth. Well, it turns out uh, after he published his, his theory of general relativity, um, people used his, his mathematics. And, and we, we discovered that space-time, which is the fundamental idea that Einstein gave us, space, that space-time itself ceases to have any operational meaning at 10 to the minus 33 centimeters and 10 to the minus 43 seconds. In other words, when you use Einstein's mathematics that Einstein himself said captures precisely the intuitions that he wanted to capture, his mathematics tells us that space-time is doomed. Space-time cannot be fundamental and it, and it falls apart precisely at 10 to the minus 33 centimeters and 10 to the minus 43 seconds, so-called Planck scale. So, so we, we, we don't, no one says, uh, no, you can't do that, Einstein. You're, you're shooting yourself on the foot logically, right? Either your mathematics you know, faithfully represents space-time or it doesn't. And if, right. if, it, if, it, if your mathematics faith, if it doesn't, properly treat space-time, then, of course, we couldn't use it to show that space-time is doomed. And if it does, you could, it would never contradict space-time. Well, that's, that, that last statement is the problem with the philosophical argument. And, and here's why. Every scientific theory has a set of assumptions that it begins with. Like in Einstein's special relativity, it's the speed of light is universal for all observers and and all experiments are the, give you the same result in, in inertial reference frames. But all the, I'm sorry, not all the experiments. But all the all the laws of physics are the same in all inertial frames, right? Okay. But, so, so what happens then is when we take those ideas and we make them mathematically precise, what we're doing is we're looking at both the power of those assumptions, the scope of those assumptions. What can they do for me? How much can I do? And in Einstein's case, they're, they're, they're incredible, incredible scope. But the mathematics also, and this is the key point, they tell you the limits of your assumptions. Mm-hmm. No theory will ever be a theory of everything. Right. Every scientific theory makes certain assumptions, and those assumptions are where you're, in some, in some case, in some sense, where your explanation stops. You don't explain your assumptions, you assume them. Right. So, so every theory is going to have its endogenous limits. And so a good mathematical representation will tell you not just the scope of your theory, but also the limits. And so what, what, what we've done then with evolutionary theory is to say, uh, you know, thank you, Darwin, for the, the incredible ideas, uh, you know, underlying evolution by natural selection. And thank you, John Maynard Smith and the, the guys who, the, the, the scientists and mathematicians who, um, turned Darwin's ideas into evolutionary game theory, that evolutionary game theory tells us both the scope and the limits of Darwin's ideas. And one of the surprising limits is our sensory systems are not shaped to show us the truth. Now, in some sense, 
that shouldn't be a surprise, right? And if you ask an, an evolutionary biologist, um, what will sensory systems be shaped to do? They will say they'll be shaped to guide adaptive behavior. That's what Darwin's theory says. They're shaped to guide adaptive behavior, right. period. It's an extra thing that just our intuitions, it's not Darwin's theory that's telling us, it's our intuitions that we feel like we better see the truth or, or we're in trouble, right? Mm-hmm. You know, or I don't, I don't want to even countenance the possibility that I don't see the truth. That would be, right. you know, that's too, that's, that's sort of when I'm, when people really take that seriously for the first time, it's scary. Mm-hmm. What do you mean? I don't see the truth. That's, that's, so we would rather not even go there. And I understand that I'm right. I'm like everybody else. I, I would, it's, it's sort of unsettling to think that we don't see the truth, but Darwin's theory says very, very clearly our, our sensory systems are shaped to guide adaptive behavior, period, not to show the truth. And, and the intuition, I think, that really helps um, to see how that works is, uh, is again, like um, playing a game, you know, a video game on your computer or, or a virtual reality game, right? right. If, you're, if you're like a, playing a game like of Grand Theft Auto or something like that, um, the reality that you're interacting with, I mean, what you see is like a red Ferrari, you see your steering wheel, you see your dashboard, you see a green Mustang you're racing or whatever it might be. Right. But the reality that you're interacting with in this metaphor is is not a, a red Mustang or a green Ferrari, whatever it might be. It's it's just a, some supercomputer somewhere, right? That that's what. So, and what you're really doing in this metaphor is you're toggling millions of bits per second. You're just toggling right. values of bits in, in a precise order. Every the sequence of bits has to be exactly right for you to play the game. So. Now, if you one way to try to play the game is to get in there and actually get into the computer itself and try to probe and and by hand do all the bits as fast as you can. Good luck. Yeah, you, no. you will lose. Right? Absolutely. If you if you see the truth, you won't win the game. So what we have is a little user interface with a steering wheel and a dashboard and, and a gas pedal, and and that lets you play the game. You know, right. say Grand Theft Auto game successfully, whereas knowing the truth um, will be, you know, hamstring you. It, it, it'll keep you from from actually competing. And so that's what evolution is, is done. It gave us a headset. It gave us a VR headset to play the right. game of life. And you don't need to know what's behind the set, headset at all to play mm-hmm. the game. In fact, it's it, it would be a liability to have to to deal with the reality behind the headset, just like it would be a liability to have to toggle the voltages in a com- supercomputer to play the game of Grand Theft Auto. So that's the the intuition about why we don't see the truth. And that's just evolution by natural selection. Mm-hmm. You, someone might say, well, you know, okay, right. Saying that sp- space and time are not fundamental and objects in space and time is not fundamental. That That's, um, that's really the bailiwick of physics. And, you know, and that's not, I mean, so surely the physicist will, will put you in your place. Hmm. And, and what's remarkable is that the physicists themselves are, and it's a certain subset of physicists, I just say, they're the, the high energy theoretical physicists. So these are the, the physicists who are dealing with the really highest energies. So they're pushing physics to its limit to the smallest scales and looking at what's happening at the smallest scales that and thinking about that. And they're the ones that realize, oh, at the Planck scale, it falls apart. 
And right. therefore, we need a brand new framework. We, we can't just fix space-time. We can't tinker with it. We need something brand new and deeper. And they're finding just in the last 10 years, so this is fairly new, but in the last 10 years, they've been finding structures entirely outside of space-time. And I really mean that. They're, they're not like structures curled up inside space-time. Right. And it's hard for people to think about how you know what what do you mean outside of space time? Isn't space time everything there is? Right. And the answer is no. Space time is just your headset. So think about space time is just your headset, and and just imagine now of something outside the headset, and 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 that's outside of space time. So it, it, space time has a real grip on our imagination, but it doesn't take much effort to if you think about it with the metaphor of a headset. Okay, so space-time is just my headset. I'm creating it on the fly. Now imagine something that's entirely outside my headset. And that's where the physicists are. And they're finding mathematical structures. So our best theories, evolution of natural selection, and then um, high-energy theoretical particle physics, you know, like um, quantum field theory together with Einstein's theory of gravity, they're all saying the same thing. Space-time and objects inside space-time are not fundamental reality. Something deeper is 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 more fundamental, and the Two race things. is on to find it. <laughs> right, <What> is it? <laughs> right. Next Nobel Prize for sure. Yeah. Uh, two things with that. Um, you know, human beings are very good at cognitive bias, cognitive dissonance. Right. So we're very good at at um, looking even at objective truth and turning it into subjective truth uh, to for our own purposes. Right. So it's not to me, a, a large leap to say that our brains and the way we're interpreting our reality is kind of the same way. There's, it's that sort of um, dissonance that is there, not on purpose. Well, on purpose, but not in a um, intentional way, I guess, right? So, because you can have too little or too much of something and neither is optimal for survival. So we are viewing it just the way it's meant to be, you know, and these topics are very existential, obviously, you know, the leap, that's one of the things I find so intriguing about this conversation is it leaves room for the metaphysical, I feel like, and you know, go back to your, your, um, Plato's allegory of the cave. And then, you know, these, when you talk about like, you know, Newtonian physics, Einstein's theories, these are all just stepping stones. Like you said, there's assumption inside of them moving towards a broader, uh, deeper understanding of like our own universe. But what does, you know, this do understanding that conceptually our perception of the universe is not real. What does that do to those sort of theories? Does it, um, invalidate them does it in a way um justify them as as just the baby steps towards understanding what does that do well that's a great question because it it really gets to the heart of what what is science doing here i mean mm-hmm. did 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 we screw up <laughs> is this a, a big no. screw up or is this necessarily the way science works and i think it's right. the latter that that Agreed. as i mentioned earlier every scientific theory makes assumptions right and, and those are the miracles of the theory. Those Absolutely. are the things that we don't explain with the theory. We assume them. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the nature of scientific explanation. You can't get a theory without assumptions. So right. every scientific theory will only be a theory of everything except my assumptions, right. <laughs> not a theory of everything. And, and so we're, we're, that leads to infinite job security for science in principle, right? Because we'll always be looking for deeper and, and deeper, um, 
foundations for, for mm-hmm. our theories. So, so it's not a, you know, a mess up on the part of science that, um, you know, it, it has been using space time or sp- space and time and more recently space time as the foundational concept for centuries, you know, so space and time for centuries, space time since 1905. Um, right. since and, and so those have been fantastic foundational concepts and we've, we've done a lot with them, but now it's time to go outside of space time. But what's, what's interesting is we don't just say, oh, well, space time, what a, what a bummer. It was, it was a bad trip. It, it's, it's, we wasted our time. Absolutely not. It was not a waste of time. It was ex- right. exceedingly valuable. To, effectively, what we were doing is studying our headset. Mm-hmm. We didn't know it, but we were, we were studying the, the structure and the function of our headset. We thought yeah. we were studying objective reality. But, and so it's really important to understand our headset. And we learned all these incredible tools about precise mathematical models and experimental tests. So, I mean, you, humanity really pulled itself up by the bootstraps in the last five centuries you, you, with the scientific method. It's really sure. quite incredible. And, and moreover, that's not the only job of our current theories of space-time and, and physics. As, we, as, the, as the scientists begin to move outside of space-time and find structures like it, there are structures like the decorated permutations and amplitudehedra and cosmological polytopes. And there, there are these structures that they're finding, right? So it's, it's not just a hand wave. They're real structures that, that they were finding that can actually predict, like, for example, scattering of particles in, in mm-hmm. collider experiments in, right. at, at CERN and so forth. So what's, what the right. current physical theories of space and time are going to do for us is as we get these new theories outside of space-time, we have to show that when they project into space-time, they give us the physics of space-time that we already know and love. If they if they can't give us back the physics we already know and love of space-time, then our other theories are wrong. So mm-hmm. so now so our theories of space-time can't tell us what's beyond space-time. That we actually have to take a creative leap. That's the fun of science. Uh, and that's what the why the younger generation is usually the ju- the generation that takes the leap, right? Sure. Right. The old funny deads had their stuff. Now it's time for us to make our creative leap. And so they so this is a fun time for them. They're jumping outside of space time and finding wonderful stuff. The the catch is when you project it back into space time, space time can give you a thumbs down or a thumbs up. Mm-hmm. If you can't predict the scattering amplitudes for particles at collider, for example, then you're wrong. You're or, or you're not even or you're not even wrong. You're not even interesting. Right. So 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 the, the theories in space time that we have and, and know and love, um, they may prompt our ideas, but they really can't tell us what is beyond space time. So they may they help give us intuitions and so forth, but we really have to take the creative leap. What they can do is tell us no if we're mm-hmm. wrong. And um, and if we're and if they don't say you're wrong, it doesn't mean you're right. It just means that they can't tell you that you're wrong. <laughs> Find another way to make a light bulb. That that that's that's right. So so that's so that's the way science works. And and again, that's why the philosophical objections about using a, the mathematics for scientific theory to to show the limits of the theory is just wrongheaded. It, it completely misunderstands what how science really works. <laughs> right. So let me ask you this: We've evolved to this point where our perceptions are the way they are. Does that mean that we would have to be further evolved to understand things outside of space-time as we interpret it now? 
or do we well, have the tools? It depends on what theory you use. So if you okay. use, if you only have Darwin's theory, mm-hmm. then then the answer might be yes. I mean, you from 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 Darwin's theory, mm-hmm. but we realize that Darwin's theory is just a theory inside our headset, mm-hmm. right? It's not. It's it's the best theory we have. It's a beautiful theory of of biological evolution inside the space time headset. But as soon as we get outside of the headset, right? We we the fundamental tenets of Darwinian evolution may no longer be relevant at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, for example, the Darwinian evolution. Uh, has limited resources and competition for limited resources. And one of the most fundamental limited resources, perhaps the most fundamental is time, mm-hmm. right? If you don't get food in time, you die. If you don't get your oxygen in time, you die. If you don't mate in time, you don't, you don't pass on your, so, so time is like the fund. So there's limited resources, but time is really. And so the currency, and, and there's an arrow of time and that's in our headset. Mm-hmm. We have this arrow of time, but it's possible to write models of dynamics outside of space time mm-hmm. where there's no arrow of time where the dynamics is sort of like a Markovian dynamics that's stationary. But what you find is that, so you can have a dynamics in which time is not a limited resource outside of space time. Right. The, 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 the dynamics doesn't have a time limited resource, but when you project it by conditional probability, so you take this dynamics outside of space time and project it by conditional probability into space time, then you will, or, or, or not even into space time, just anything, any projection, you will get an arrow of time. Mm-hmm. And the arrow of time is not an insight about the original dynamics, it's entirely an artifact of the projection. It's mm-hmm. actually not informative about the reality it's only misinformation due to the loss of in in the projection so so we could imagine that there is a dynamics of entities outside of space-time in which there are no limited resources in which there is no competition um and and so so that opens up the possibility that um all of our concepts about you know levels of consciousness and evolution of consciousness uh, are not an insight at all that's entirely an artifact of our headset perspective and mm-hmm. is not a deep insight. And that's one of the things that, see, that's one of the things that's scary, but also really exciting about this kind of science. It's mm-hmm. scary to think that I could be so fundamentally wrong in things I've believed all my life. I mean, almost everything I've believed all my life could be deeply and fundamentally wrong. This is exactly what I wanted to ask you is I, yeah. when reading your book, a couple of the first thoughts I had is how did he grow up? Did he grow up in a religious home? Because some of these concepts I know to people in my family would be totally outside what I should be thinking. Right. And then obviously you're going through your life and you become a professor and you're learning all this stuff and you're um, developing your ideas and theories. Has there ever been a point where this has contradicted with your own personal belief systems and, and, you know, interacted with it. And what has that felt like? And what has that done? Um, all the, it, it contradicts my deeply held emotions Yeah, okay. <laughs> from, from head to toe. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it, it's, it completely, it, the first time I got a glimpse that this might be where the math was leading me 
I had mm-hmm. to sit down. It was it was such a stunning experience. I had to just sit down. And I, even though I talk about it and I've done all this math, every in, instinct inside me rebels. I mean, I it's scary to think that I don't see the truth. Um, and it's just natural to think that I'm, you know, I see a rock, that's because there is a rock. Of course, the moon is there. And the moon has been there for 4 billion or 5 billion years. And and and, and the moon will be there even if I don't. I mean, all these natural int- intuitions that, that we have. And, and then my very self-conception then is on the line as well, mm-hmm. right? If, if objects in space-time are not the reality, they're, they're just a virtual reality, then what I'm seeing here, you know, I look at my hand and so forth, I'm not seeing the truth. I'm seeing, an, I'm seeing my avatar. This is not the real me. This is just my avatar. It's like, again, in the Grand Theft Auto VR kind of thing. If I mm-hmm. see my hands on the steering wheel, in, in the in the Grand Theft Auto. Well, those aren't really my hands. That, that's, right. I mean, those are just symbols in my VR. Well, I'm saying that's what my entire body is. And that's, mm-hmm. for example, my brain and my neurons. Those those things don't even exist unless they're rendered by looking. Like yeah. in, in virtual reality, right? If, you, if you're playing Grand Theft Auto and, and you see a red Ferrari to your right, well, there is no red Ferrari in the supercomputer. Where, where is that red Ferrari? Well, it's only there when you look, when you render it, when you actually see it. Mm-hmm. As soon as you look away, there is no red Ferrari anywhere. Right. Now, you might say, well, my friend over in China who's playing you know multiplayer game with me, he sees the red Ferrari. Well, that's because he's rendering his red Ferrari, and his red Ferrari is not the same one as my red Ferrari. Right. And, and so, so, but when you, it gets personal, your question is about the personal impact. Mm-hmm. When I realize I'm rendering my body, That's, that that's doesn't huge. get any more personal than that. And right. trying to grok, what am I? Wh- what is it that I really? So I, you know, most of us think, well, I'll tell you what I am. I'm, you know, I'm Don Hoffman. I weigh 165 pounds. Yeah, you know, I was born here and here. That and and you know, and when my body dies, that that'll be it. Well, that's one story, but but that story doesn't sit with our best sign. That 165 pound thing is, is just an avatar. And it right. doesn't even exist unless it's rendered. It, it, it's it's not even there. So the question then becomes really profound: mm-hmm. What am I? And I mean, it's, you, normally it's you want to say, with well, the religious line, line, am I? You know, <laughs> right? Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, so so, but so it's, it becomes very very personal. And and so lots of people in spiritual traditions are interested in this kind of research because it it does. Here's where science is now you know, forcing an issue mm-hmm. of asking, I'm, I am whatever it is that's doing the science and asking these questions. Mm-hmm. And whatever I am that's doing that is, has coming to the conclusion that this body is something that the, whatever I am is rendering on the fly. So what am I that's doing the rendering on the fly of the moon, the sun, the earth, and my body and my hands? And, and, and that's, you know, that's, truly profound. So, and, and so many spiritual traditions will say, well, welcome to the club. We've been here for thousands of years. We've mm-hmm. been asking that question and the scientists are sort of latecomers. And yeah, we are. And it's, it's, it's a shocking kind of party to join for, for, for all of us. It's, I think even people who are in spiritual traditions and have meditated oh, for a really? long time are is still like, holy smoke. I mean, it takes a long time to readjust your self image. Um, but, but 
I, readjusted to what? <laughs> right. I think it's really interesting. A lot of religious concepts have the concept of something obviously outside the self and um, that this is just a vessel that they're, you know, the concept of the soul and, um, you know, some of the more Eastern traditions of like unknowledge, unlearning what, what our perceptions are and all this. And I've sort of long held yes. that belief that science and religion are trying to answer the same question, which is obviously, you know, it's that broad question of why, how are we here? Why are we here? All of that, right? Um, yeah. I'm wondering, like, have you ever worked with somebody or had a conversation with somebody in the objective, with the objective of learning and, and deepening your understanding of your own postulations from a religious standpoint or try to incorporate con conceptually some of those religious standpoints? Yes, I've had lots of, of conversations with, with spiritual teachers of various kinds, so, mm -hmm. and from various traditions. So with a Jewish rabbi, mm -hmm. um, I, Joseph Dweck, mm -hmm. um, with the Dalai Lama, um, with Rupert Spira, who's a wonderful spiritual teacher. Um, Deepak Chopra is actually a good friend, yeah. and we've had oh, wow. a number of, of conversations. Wow. Um, and, and and also uh, um, people who are is, uh, mystical Islam. Um, mm -hmm. we've, we've had conversations. So I'm, I'm very interested. And my, my attitude is I, I think that um, – they have a, a big piece of the puzzle, mm -hmm. especially the mystical traditions. Uh, also, by the way, in, in mystical Christianity, like you know, I'm very interested in like what the Benedictine monks have to say, uh, Thomas mm -hmm. Keating, and so forth, mm -hmm. um, and also spiritual teachers like Eckhart Tolle. I, mm -hmm. I think they're they're truly profound, and they're on to to something very very deep. Right. Um, the where science and and science hasn't been in this feel very much right? right. we've been in space time and, and right. this is something beyond space time it is but my my best guess on what's going to happen going forward is we're going to find that many of the ideas in these spiritual traditions are, are very very valuable mm -hmm. some are nonsense sure. and 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 what science is going to bring to the table is the precise mathematical language and the tools of experiments and, and, and critical tests. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's going to be this wonderful rapprochement and actual synergy between science and spirituality, where the, the wonderful tools of science that we've sharpened by understanding our headset, we thought we were understanding reality, but we were understanding our headset. Right. But now we can use those tools to go beyond the headset. And, and where the spiritual traditions have said, I think, true and useful things, but, but they would they would tell you that the real good spiritual teachers would say that our language is just pointers, right? Mm -hmm. It's not, don't mistake what we say for the truth. Um, use it as a pointer and then drop the pointer, mm -hmm. right? Like the Tao Te Ching says, the Tao that can be spoken is not the true Tao. It's, it's, it starts off by saying, don't take the words too literally. Right. Try to see through the words into yourself mm -hmm. and, and don't get hung up on dogmas that will come out from taking the words too literally right. and and so and that I, the nice thing about the mathematics in science is it says the same thing our scientific theories are not true mm -hmm. but they're precise and they tell us the scope because of that precision we understand the scope and the limits as we said at the very start the limits of our theories and that is the antidote to dogmatism when your own theory tells you precisely this is where i stop Mm -hmm. then there's no, there aren't going to be, you know, 
holy wars over misreadings of various kinds of scriptures and, and so forth, because right. the, 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 the mathematical theories will, themselves will tell you, hey, take us seriously this far, and then don't take us seriously beyond that. We, mm-hmm. Then we stop. And so that's, and, and I think the spiritual traditions would all, would all agree that ultimately, yes, no pointer is it. Mm-hmm. Every pointer should be taken with um, a grain of salt, but as helpful. And as soon as it's not helpful, drop the pointer and, and, and look for other pointers. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So, you know, religion, spirituality, whatever you want to call it, it, it holds a lot of truth for a lot of people. And it gives a lot of comfort, gives a lot of guidance. Um, you know, people use it as a way to understand who they are and their family and all of that. And would you say then that, like we said, that, you know, religion and science sort of try to answer the same questions in, in some ways, that maybe religion and spirituality, these are just primitive attempts at understanding that metaphysical side to what reality, objective reality is? That's a great question. And and I, I should say up front that, that scientists um, have addressed that question mm-hmm. and disagreed. So there are some scientists who will say, Look, there are two separate arenas. There's the arena of science and there's the arena of spirituality and never the two shall meet. And yes. science does what it does and spirituality does what it does. Right. And then there are others that say, no, uh, you know, spiritual traditions are making truth claims. Mm-hmm. And as soon as you make truth claims, then then science is interested. And I'm, I'm more of the latter type. I, I think that that both science and spirituality are trying to make claims about mm-hmm. the nature of reality. Mm-hmm. Um and they're truth claims, but as I've said, they're not the ultimate truth. They're just, here's a, maybe what we should say, instead of a truth claim, it's a useful perspective on the truth. Right. Like, this is a useful perspective on the truth, but it's not the, the final word. So so I think that, that my take is that um, science and spirituality are, are both a quest for the same thing, uh, basically under, to understand who am I? Who right. are we? Right. What's going on here? What's this all about? Mm-hmm. And what does it mean to, to live a, a worthwhile life, for example? I mean, you get yeah. 80 years if you're lucky, 90 years if you're really lucky. Um, <clears throat> what, what, what is it about? And, and why are we here? And the, the answer in, in, science and spirituality have been very, very different until recently, right? So within the physicalist framework of, of science, it's it's been, look, space-time is fundamental. You are your body mm-hmm. and your consciousness and all your emotions, your hopes, your dreams and aspirations, all that conscious stuff that's so important to you is entirely a product of your brain or your mm-hmm. embodied brain mm-hmm. or your embodied brain in an environment, depending on who you're talking to. And... <clears throat> And so, so, of course, when when your body dies and your brain decays, um, all those hopes, dreams, aspirations dissolve mm-hmm. utterly, completely. There's nothing left. That that's that's one framework. Whereas the spiritual traditions have said, no, 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 no. There's something beyond the space time mm-hmm. and the physical. But they haven't had the tools to do anything about. It. There's nothing. There's no you know like experiments that, that are that are. I mean, there are experiments and, and so forth, but nothing. Right. That reaches the level where where the majority of scientists will will take it quite seriously. Right. That's been the state of play until recently. But now I think with science 
and scientists saying space-time is doomed. And now asking, okay, well, what is outside of space-time? And when we start having dynamical entities, when we have dynamics Mm -hmm. of entities outside of space-time, the question is going to arise. What are these entities outside of space-time that are having dynamics? And and they're not confined to space-time anymore. Well, that sounds like what spiritual traditions have been saying informally Mm -hmm. for a long time. And now science may be forced to say it formally and take it quite seriously. Um, So so I think that there will be um, a lot of useful collaboration, talking back and forth between science and spirituality. They're very, very different languages. And so there's going to need to be a lot of um, compassion, a lot of, you know, persistence and, and, and so forth to, to bridge, right. bridge the gap. And, and of course, certain individuals will bridge it within themselves. There are some people who are first rate scientists and, and maybe spiritual, uh, quite spiritual as well. So, mm-hmm. so I, I see going forward, the, the rift between science and spirituality may mend mm-hmm. and, and it will be useful. I think beneficial for, for all of mankind. Um, but I Agreed. think, Everybody on both sides will have to give up things Something. that they dearly cling to, That's including true. your answer to the question, who am I? Mm-hmm. Which is one of the deepest and most important things. So, so we're in for an exciting ride here. And uh, I hope I live to see it. Open to being wrong and to, and to being surprised. Right. Going back a little bit to what you said, the the word entity invokes a lot of different thoughts when you say that, right? So are you saying that science has or maybe has or begun to discover entities outside of space-time, meaning something that has some sort of consciousness or or am I misunderstanding? Uh, Well, so um, entities right now only mean mathematical structures. Understood. So, so the physicists, for example, who have discovered things like the amplitudehedron and and uh, decorated permutations, uh, I, I think none of them would say that they have anything to do with consciousness whatsoever. Right? They, okay. they would just say these are these are structures outside of space time that remarkably allow us to actually compute the probabilities of particle interactions at, at colliders inside space time mm-hmm. and do it much faster and more cleanly with more insight than if we did it in space time. So when you go out, by the way, when you go outside of space time, the math becomes simpler and, and the computations become simpler and you see new oh. symmetries. So, so okay. you're getting another hint. Space time is really um, just a crude headset. And when you let go of the headset, you see the deeper structures and the math becomes much more beautiful and you see symmetries and so forth. Mm-hmm. So, so that, that's really quite intriguing, so, but none of them, I haven't seen any who, who are, you know, these high energy theoretical physicists who would, who would want to at this point say that their mathematical structures are, mm-hmm. are conscious entities in any sense. Okay. However, they're not doing with dynamics right now, right? Mm-hmm. So they just have these static structures. Ultimately, if physicists, find that there's a some kind of dynamical system outside of space-time. The question is going to come up now, okay, what are these entities, why are they doing anything, and, and mm-hmm. w- w- what's going on here? And, and the idea that maybe these entities are conscious entities will certainly be uh, something that will have to be at least considered, if, mm-hmm. you know, that maybe they want to discard it, but it will be something that you'll 
maybe want to consider. Now, there are things like people might say, well, it's just automata. So there are these automata outside of space, mm-hmm. like, like little Turing machines or something like that, that, that are interacting. And, and, and that, that might be one way that you go. You, you, you just, and there's no consciousness out there. There's, mm-hmm. but, but there'll be automata outside of space-time. These are not little creatures inside space-time. They're utterly outside of space-time. So already that, that's, that's weird enough. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> no, that is. So speaking of math, how early to be in the conversation, obviously uh, anyone who's read your book, you say the probability is zero, right? Of, of us understanding objective reality the way it is. How do you mathematically come to the determination that it is zero? Right. So without going into the weeds too much, just at top sure. level. Sure. Um, <clears throat> the idea is that in evolutionary theory, there are these things called fitness payoff functions. So, so do, you know, if I eat a steak and I'm a human being, that has positive fitness. If I mm-hmm. eat some vegetables, maybe even better fitness. But but if sure. I eat um, uh, poison ivy, right. it's going to be really bad for my fitness, right? right? So so you can imagine saying, okay, if I if I take this action, eat a, eat a steak, I, right. I could get good points. Maybe I get a hundred points. If I get poison ivy, it maybe it's minus a hundred points, right? That, right. Uh, that's bad for me. And sure. maybe if I have vegetables, maybe it's plus 200 points. In other words, you, you put a rating scale. And then also, you know, if, if I mate with a human being, well, if I, but if I try to mate with, you know, a, a tree, well, that's like minus 100 points. So it's not going to do anything for you, right? That's not it. Right. It, it, it. So you can, so for all these activities, you can talk about what is the payoff for those activities. And those are the fitness payoff functions. And so the payoffs are going to depend on, if you think about it, okay, well, I mean, what's a good payoff for a human being is different for what's a good payoff for a donkey, right? Sure. Right. For, for example, human beings mating with human beings is a good deal, but not, yeah. not mating with donkeys and vice versa for the donkeys. So, so, so the fitness payoffs depend on the organism, like humans versus donkeys, the, the state of the organism, like you're hungry or thirsty or whatever, and the action. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, feeding, fighting, fleeing, or mating, the, the, mm-hmm. the, the famous 4S. So it depends on the state of the world, the organism is state, and the action. So they're complicated okay. functions. Now you can ask a technical question. Suppose, so this function starts with the state of the world, and it gives you a number, like from 0 to 100. 0 means you're screwed. 100 right. means you're wonderful, right? Wonderful. That's, that's a good payoff. So... These are the the fitness payoffs are the things that drive evolution. They're the the coin of the realm. So the question then is, it's a function from the state of the world to zero through 100. So suppose I want to know, will this fitness payoff function allow me to see the structure of the state of the world, the the truth, right? Mm -hmm. So suppose the world has something like what we call a total order, like, one is less than two is less than three is, and each one that's a total order um and or it could be a metric a is this far from b b is this far from c that's a that's sort of a distance what is the so in each case you can ask what is the probability if i look at all the possible fitness payoff functions and there, there are lots of fitness payoff functions and evolutionary theory doesn't tell you which payoff functions to choose are, are the real ones right they, right. they say a, you know, a fitness payoff function starts with the states of the world, the organism is state in its action, and it gives you a number. 
but there's nothing in evolutionary theory which puts a, puts a, a limit on the relevant fitness payoff function. So any possible payoff function has to be considered in current evolutionary theory a relevant payoff function. So we can look at the space of all possible fitness payoff function. We can say, suppose the world, just suppose a simple world has just 100 states in the world. It's not the real world, but it's a, okay. And we can look at then, and, and we, we're going to look at only payoff values from zero to 100. Mm-hmm. So we can actually then write down all the possible fitness payoff. That's a toy model, but we can look at it, right? Yes. And we can say how many of those fitness payoffs would preserve, say, a total order on the world? Mm-hmm. Like zero, one, two, three, up to 100, that, that total order. Well, you, that, that's a mathematical problem you can solve. And the answer is zero. Zero percent. There are some. But when you look at the, the, the number that actually preserved the total order divided by the total number of fitness payoff functions, what you find is it's very, very small for 100. And as the number of states in the world goes from 100 to 1,000 to a million to a billion to infinity, mm-hmm. the, the, num- the, the fraction of payoff functions that actually have information about the structure of the world goes precisely to zero. Mm-hmm. And this happens over and over again for any structure that you want to look at, metric, Measure uh, measurable space structure, whatever you want, it it goes to zero. So that's so that's a little in the weeds, but that that's you can measure off into the weeds a little bit for sure. You very eloquently put that. I uh, appreciate that. Um, So these fitness payoffs, obviously, there is um, biological markers in human beings for determining fitness, right? So how do those blend into some of those concepts in your book where you talk about like beauty? Right. And understanding, um, you know, how somebody is determining somebody's uh, maximum potential for reproduction or whatever, which obviously is the end goal. Right. Of of relationships that way. How how do those blend those fitness payoffs? And like you said, the concept of beauty and biological markers. Right. So so evolutionary theory, which is our best theory inside space time about Mm -hmm. our bodies and evolution of our bodies and our sensory systems. Again, it's not the final word, but it's the mm-hmm. best word we've got. And it gives us incredible tools right. for understanding, for example, attractiveness. What right. we've, as you, you, you raised that issue of, of attractiveness. And so from an evolutionary point of view, what what is um, sexual attractiveness? Well, from an evolutionary point of view, what's really going on is when you when you look at a person and in that first glance, you know, the first 500 milliseconds, half a second, what your what your visual system and, and your sensory systems more generally are doing is they're they're hoovering up dozens and dozens of of visual, auditory, um, olfactory cues from sure. the, from that person, and you're doing one of the most complicated computations that you ever do in your entire life. You're estimating all. You're looking at dozens and dozens of cues. And you're you're computing one thing. What is the probability that the person in front of me could successfully raise, have and raise kids? You're not doing that consciously. You you just get a hit like this is this person is cute or not, or you know they're hot or not. It's just Um, happening. It's it's just it's it's automatic. But what's so that feeling of attractiveness? is a, a really sophisticated computation. And so what we've been able to do is to dig into that computation. What's, what are the cues and what precise values of those cues 
make you look more attractive or less. And so one, one cue that I and my, some of my graduate students, Darren Peshek um, and, and others, uh, Nagar, Samak Najad, um, worked on was um, the eye and something called the limbal ring of, of the eye. So you, if you look at an eye, there's the white of the eye, and then there's the dark iris. And if the iris is not too dark, so if it's a, a light brown or a blue or a gray or something like that, then in many cases you can see a ring right where the, the white meets the dark. And, and that ring uh, can only be seen if your eye is clear, right? If you, if you have a bad eye, if, 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 it's, if it's bad, you, you can't see the ring. Um, and, and it turns out that in infants, the ring is a little bit thicker proportionally, and it gets statistically thinner as you get older. Mm-hmm. So, so a, a, a thick and clear ring is a statistical indicator, not a perfect indicator, but a statistical indicator of youth and health. And that's what you're really looking for in your evaluations of uh, sexual attractiveness. The ratings of males for females, and and by the way, right now I'm talking heterosexual, there's not a lot that is known about these same cues in in homosexual attractiveness. So I'm going to, for now, just have to say, don't know. Interesting, but don't know. My guess is that they're going to pick up on many of the same cues. My guess, but I don't have the data, so I I have to be very clear. But my guess is that, that, um, heterosexual and homosexual, the, the cue that I'm talking about is going to be the same, that okay. will have the same effect. It, it will increase attractiveness mm. in both cases. So so what we did was to test this, we, we got subjects into an, a room, an experiment. We had them sit in front of a computer and we would flash the same face, on the, but two pictures of the same face that looked identical. But when, in one of them, we had just altered the limbal ring, made it a little bit thicker and a little bit more pronounced. And we just asked the person, we said, we're going to show you a bunch of pairs of faces. On each trial, you'll see a pair of faces and pick the one that's most attractive. Right. So we'd start the subjects in the experiment. And after a couple of trials, they go, wait, the faces are the same. I mean, this is, this is, is this a trick? I mean, the, the, I don't see any difference. And we say, yeah, they, they just humorous. Just, just go with your gut. Right. Jeez. And so they go, okay, well, I'm going to, so and what happened was, well above chance, they would pick the face with the the more pronounced nimble ring. Wow! And and so what, what? So and they didn't even know that they were seeing it. So this is the key thing. What we you don't even know consciously what it is you're picking up. All you know, but you are picking it up. There's some algorithm inside your head that's looking for that. It evaluates that limbal ring and it puts it into the computation of, of thumbs up or thumbs down on the attractiveness. Mm-hmm. So, and we, there are dozens of cues like that. And so Mm -hmm. I've done a lot of consulting for companies where I help them um, with their products and their advertising, because you, once you understand how this works, you can, you can grab people's attention and make things look attractive. Yeah. Definitely think that lends more credence to what you're saying about how, about survivability and, and us and our perception, because that's the whole point of reproduction is survivability. So of course, biologically you evolve to, and not everybody does. This is obviously there's certain biological markers that people find more attractive than, than others. Right. So not everybody um, has those. Um, but I think that's very interesting because it, it is, they play right into each other. They're espoused that way. Um, 
So I, that was a concept in your book I found really interesting because it's it's when you're when you're taking these super like scientific looks at things and I'm not a scientist, but I think that the biological aspect of it and just attractiveness of reproduction, I feel like would get lost. You know what I mean? And you did a really good job outlining that in your book where I can understand and other people. And then for a lot of people, that's fun stuff, right? The, you, yeah. How to be attractive. I actually give you pointers of what, what you can do to look attractive, including yeah. in your genes. What, what, what you need to do to look attractive in your genes and so yeah, forth. You're, you got a pretty good picture in, in the book there. People have to buy to find out. But yeah. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Just a little bit of change in your genes can make you um, look a, a whole lot hotter. So, right. Uh, <laughs> exactly. So was there a point in your career, right, where you could um, remember thinking, this is what I want to study and this is where I want to go with this or, or has this always sort of since you began your academic you know, life, something that's been in the back of your mind? No, it's been um, even since my teenage years, I've been interested in, in the question of who are we? Mm-hmm. Am, am I just a machine? That was the way I, I thought about it um, as a teenager Am I a machine or am I something more like the, like the spiritual traditions say? Am I something that's not just a machine? Mm-hmm. And I decided that the best way to do that and not just I, – I, I didn't want to take things on faith. I'm, I'm hard-nosed. I want, I want to actually dive in and, and understand it as best as we possibly can. Mm-hmm. So I figured the best way to do that would be to jump into the field of artificial intelligence, which at the time was a, a new field. Because that's going to tell me how far can the machine metaphor go? Can mm. if artificial intelligences can do everything humans do and more, then maybe we're just machines. Mm-hmm. But if there's some limit, then I want to know what that limit is. So, so I wanted to to understand both human neuroscience and human neuro cognitive neuroscience and artificial intelligence. So I, I ended up going um, uh, to UCLA, but but. For my, for my upper division undergrad, and then to uh, MIT in the Artificial mm-hmm. Intelligence Laboratory at MIT, and with now the Brain and Cognitive Science Department, um, both both camps there. So I did the artificial intelligence stuff, and I did the cognitive neuroscience to really understand, okay, is there something special about humans, or could AIs do it all? And, that, and that I started there in 1979, and it's, wow. it's still, you know, AI went through some low points in, in the, in the intervening decades, but it's, it's resurgence is, is real right now. And, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of questions, the questions that, that got me going in the late seventies, you know, are we just artificial intelligences or not? My take is, um, that we're, we aren't even entities in space time, <laughs> right? My, my body is just an avatar in a headset. The space time is not the, so that mm-hmm. our best science is telling us whatever we are, um, we're not machines inside space time. Now it doesn't re- rule out that we're machines outside of space time, but we're not mm-hmm. machines inside space time. Right. And uh, now the other thing that's quite interesting is that my, I have a lot of brilliant colleagues and friends who are studying consciousness from cognitive neuroscience and AI points of view. And, trying to, for example, show how consciousness could be booted up from neural activity or orchestrated collapse of uh, quantum states of neuronal microtubules and and so forth, or integrated information. And these are brilliant friends and colleagues. They're, they're, They're absolutely brilliant. But what's remarkable is there's not a single specific 
conscious experience. Mm-hmm. Taste of chocolate, smell of garlic, feeling right. of a headache. There's not a single specific conscious experience that they can explain with any of the theories. Not one. Mm. They're batting zero on specific conscious experiences. And and no one really has a clue. The, the closest they've gotten is, is integrated information theory has tried to come up with the, the, the feeling of spatial, just space. But, you know, the question I would put to them is, well, visual space, auditory space, somatosensory, those are very, very different feelings of space. Which one is yours? And, and what... And what makes yours auditory or somatosensory or visual space? And, and why is it in principle that kind of space and not the other? There, mm. there, there's nothing on the, there's nothing on the table. Mm. So, okay. so that doesn't mean that they, they won't, but, but my take on it is the failure is principled. These are really, really bright people. Mm-hmm. If it could be done they would have had some breakthroughs on specific problems. I think it's a principled failure. And I, th- I think that you can't boot up consciousness from unconscious ingredients. I think it's that simple. That makes you sense. cannot, so I'll be very clear. A scientific theory cannot start with unconscious ingredients of any kind and boot up consciousness. Just not possible. That's my, my hypothesis. I think wow. you have, or if you want consciousness, you're going to have to start with an assumption. There you <laughs> uh, go. Now, and the, that's where I'm headed is you, my, so my, my brilliant colleagues assume space and time. They assume physical objects and neurons in space and time. And then they also have to stipulate the conscious experiences or stipulate that there are illusions. Mm-hmm. What I say is, well, if I only stipulate the conscious experiences and I don't stipulate space and time and physical objects and neurons, and I can actually start with my theory of conscious consciousness and boot up space and time and and then i've actually stipulated less and so by occam's razor that scientific theory wins Mm -hmm. so the scientific theory that assumes only that only stipulate consciousness and then shows how space and time arises from it beats a theory that stipulates space and time and neurons and physical stuff and also is forced to stipulate consciousness you're right because because they can't boot it up so i think that Ultimately, Occam's razor is going to force us out of our physicalism and force us to take the idea that consciousness is fundamental quite seriously, simply because it gives well us it, it will give us um, a smaller set of premises for our theories. Well said. So I know you're we're running a little short on time, yeah. uh, but I want to ask you two questions. Uh, I'll ask the, the the I guess the more difficult of them first. Sure. Uh, has has anybody kind of refuted or, or criticized what you've said? And if they have, what has been, um, I guess you'd say, the, the most intellectual criticism that you've met in your theories? Uh, well, yeah, I get, of course, what I'm saying is, is so counterintuitive and, and strikes so deep at our sense of self mm-hmm. that I'm not surprised that, that many people react both positively and negatively. And so mm-hmm. I'll, I'll, I'll get emails from people saying wow. that I'm, I'm completely insane or, oh, wow. or oh, absolutely. And then others say that, that, that love it, but the most, the, the, and, and there's all sorts of grades, but in terms of people who've really um, thought deeply about things, I would say that most of my colleagues who are studying consciousness mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and many of them are good friends of mine because this is my field. Of course. Um, 
they're happy to see me at conferences and we, you know, we chat and, and, and have a good time and so forth. But I think that most of them are still physicalists mm-hmm. and most of them, they're cognitive neuroscientists or artificial intelligence researchers. They're, they don't really know what's happened in the high energy theoretical physics community that space time is doomed. They don't okay. know that the rug has been pulled on mm-hmm. space time and also reductionism. Reductionism. Reductionism is dead it's it, they don't, they don't know it's dead but it it's dead scientifically mm-hmm. so there's so they're still thinking that we're going to look for the neural correlates of consciousness what what neural patterns of activity are correlated with my experience of the color green mm-hmm. you know the smell of garlic and so forth get all those correlations and and then we'll eventually suss out you know how the neural activity causes those conscious experiences so most of my colleagues are still in that game i would say 95 99 percent of my colleagues so so of course they think that i'm dead wrong you're cutting edge and, right yeah, I'm, I'm so i'm on i'm on the fringe in, the, in that in that mm-hmm. sense i like that but historically in 1905 when einstein published his special theory of relativity newtonian space-time was dead Mm-hmm. As a fundamental theory, it's still right. alive, of course. It's very useful for sending rockets to the moon and so forth. But as a fu- as a foundational concept for science, no more. That, that was over. Mm-hmm. But in 1922, when Einstein got his Nobel Prize, mm-hmm. the Nobel Committee made special pains to say this is not for relativity theory. This is for his photoelectric effect. Mm-hmm. So they did not believe it, it was over for space time. Uh, it, I'm sorry. It was over for Newtonian space. Makes it, yeah, Sp- space time was here, and it was going to take over. But mm-hmm. even the Nobel Committee, 17 years later, and these are not these are careful, reasoned people. Right. 17 years after it was over for Newton, the committee didn't recognize it was over. Wow. It's over for neural reductionism because it's over for reductionism. Mm-hmm. But even really brilliant people, it'll take. This is so deep, it'll take decades. But yeah. it is already over, but it will take a few decades for even the intelligentsia in my field to really grasp it's over. Mm. And we need new, we, we cannot reduce consciousness to anything inside space time, including integrated information or neural activity. Well, uh, I've got to ask you last question. You don't have to get too crazy into it. I know you're getting short on time, but do you believe? There's an afterlife. Um, yes, uh, I think that space time is just a headset. Mm-hmm. And, and by the way, okay, um, I, yeah, I should be careful when I say you know here's here's what my science is saying. Here's what I personally think, going beyond my science and so forth. Um, so this is my my statement here is part of both, right? There's I think part of it is based on what my science is saying, and part of it is my my leaps based on what the science is saying. Space time is just a headset. Mm-hmm. That that part I think is pretty secure. Yeah. Death, then maybe just simply taking off that headset. Mm-hmm. That's less secure, but but that wouldn't even be possible in a physicalist framework, right? That that, right. that idea is not even possible in physics, but it's it's certainly possible in the framework that I'm looking at, and. The, the the mathematics that I'm working on right now, um, where the very notion of time itself is of a, with an arrow of time, 
mm-hmm. is entirely an artifact of the projection into our space-time headset. That also lends credence to me, to my belief. Um, I'm talking about my own credence, not yeah. general, but my own credence in the idea that 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 space-time um, and and the, the feeling of life and death is just the life and death of an avatar, but the avatar is not me. Mm-hmm. That's the so. What's clear from this is my body is not me. Right. The body is just an avatar. Right. And, and now it's, it's still possible that the death of the avatar somehow is the death of me ultimately, mm-hmm. but but is no longer forced. Whereas in space, in, in physicalism, it's forced, right? Right. Death of your body is the death of you. In this other framework, it's not forced. Um, so in my, so if I had to bet, it would be 99 to one. Um, that 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 there is survival solid odds after, um, but but we're just at the beginning of the science outside of space time that could really nail this down. Right. Um, so I'm pretty excited about it. Um, That's amazing. There's a lot to unpack with a lot of what you're saying. I wish we had more time, but um, thank you so much for talking to me tonight. Uh, you're definitely a remarkable human being. Um, I hope to you know talk to you again someday, and definitely on the lookout for anything else you publish. Um, so I'll, like I said before, I'll, I'll put your book up so people can find it. Uh, I know you have a website. Um, yes. it seems like you're fairly active on, on Twitter X on Twitter. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, whatever that's we're cool. calling it nowadays. Right. So, but <laughs> thank you again so much, Don, for coming on. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you, Brent. And, and wonderful questions. Thank you very much.